If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and you just look back a few verses to the end of Mark chapter 4, we're going to be picking up the story uh, of Jesus and, and the demoniac, but we're going to be picking up the story just a few verses before in Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching various parables about his kingdom. He talks about the parable of the sower, and uh, you know we talk about the four types of soil in the parable of the sower, the, 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 the smooth road, the rocky soil, the soil full of weeds, and the good soil, but the parable is actually called the parable of the sower and tells us a lot about God and His, his grace to all of humanity, uh, just not, not just the four types of soil we find there. Then Jesus tells various parables about His kingdom, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the growing seed, and then finally, at the end of the day, He's exhausted. And uh, I can tell you that you know, when you're preaching all day, it's really exhausting. Um, if you go and preach at a camp meeting, you do three sermons a day. By the second day, you just want people to guide you from your room to the pulpit and back again. You're, you're like a stunned ox. You're just exhausted. It's a brutal thing to preach all day. And Jesus comes to the end of a long day of teaching. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. So follow me in your Bibles, and this is what it says. Mark 4, beginning at verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now, Jesus has spent the whole day preaching, and quite possibly he was physically tired. But we also know later in the story that Jesus has someone to meet on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 36, And leaving the boat behind, the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. And if you've never been to Israel today, um, you can still go there. It's worth a visit, even though the Middle East is troubled. It's still worth going to Israel. You can go to the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is one of the most beautiful parts of the Middle East. And one of the reasons it's beautiful is that all around to the west and the east, you have this kind of brown scrub. But around the Sea of Galilee, you have this, this like an, an emerald necklace of beautiful green. It's deep green vegetation. And it only stretches about half a mile on either, around the edges of the Sea of Galilee, but it's beautiful to see. And Jesus is crossing from the western side of the Sea of Galilee <coughs> across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going from the Israelite side of Galilee to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And no self-respecting Jew would want to travel from the Israelite side of Galilee to the Gentile side of Galilee. And just north of the Sea of Galilee, there are the Golan Heights and a tall mountain called Mount Hermon. And even if you go to the Middle East today, it's hot and dusty in most places, but Mount Hermon is covered with snow year-round. And the Mount Hermon, the waters, they trickle on one side down to Galilee, and they flow down to the east, down to Damascus. That's why Naaman was concerned, why should I wash in the muddy Jordan? There are better waters than Damascus, and it's actually true. And in those hot summer days in Israel, you have cold air slides down from Hermon, from the snow. When cold air slides and it meets warm air, what do you get? Well, worst case scenario is you get a tornado. You know, when, when warm air hits cold air at an angle, the air spins and you have a tornado. But what happens in, in the Sea of Galilee, even to this day, is that cold air slides from the heights of Mount Hermon, the snowy heights, down to the Sea of Galilee, and when you get this collision of warm air and cold air, you get these sudden storms arising out of almost nothing. I used to go sailing as a small boy, and you learn to recognize when there's a storm coming when you're in a small boat. 
They're called cat's paws on the lake. Have you ever seen cat's paws? It's like there's a cat just kind of tipping the water with its paws. When you see that on the water around you, you know that the wind is about to pick up. But in the Sea of Galilee, there's almost no indication when a, when a storm is about to arise. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and he, suddenly a storm arises. And it says in verse 37 that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus, in verse 38, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Sometimes it seems to us in the storms of our lives that Jesus is asleep at the wheel as well. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever, I'm mixing metaphors here, he's asleep at the wheel, he's in the back of a boat, but you know what I mean? Sometimes it seems to us that our world is falling apart. We can't pay the rent this month because we had a flat tire. Whatever it may be, our world is falling apart. And sometimes we ask, teacher, do you not care that I am perishing right now? When you're driving home and you get a flat tire in Minnesota winter, that's how you feel. When the wind is minus 20 with wind chill, do you not care, God, that this is happening right now? Two summers ago, I was in northern Iraq. I was there, was it, we in AFM were working with the refugees from ISIS. And you sit and you listen to an Iraqi woman telling you her story. How ISIS came in summer 2014 to Mosul. And they said to all the Christians, leave. And on the way out of Mosul, they took their watches, they took their shoes, they took their belts, they took their wedding bands. They took everything of value and they took the small girls. And you listen to an Iraqi Christian woman sitting and weeping in a shed or a warehouse, wherever she happens to be living, and she tells you the story, and then she mentions the name of her daughters, and she stops. Because words do not, cannot suffice for the pain she is going through even to this day. Teacher, do you not care that this is happening to us? Well, actually, Jesus does care, and he invites us to be the Lord, to allow him to be the Lord of our life, even in the midst of the storms. As we're going to see in a minute, he's the Lord not just of our lives in the midst of the storm, but he's the Lord of the storm ultimately as well. Verse 38, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Verse 39, Jesus woke up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. Now, when I was a small boy, I used to read the, you know, the, the um, I still have them with our children. Do you have those ten, the, the ten volume Bible stories from, by um, the, the, their blue books? And you work your way through those books about every about two years at Texas. Now, families work our way, and our family worships through all those books. When my girl was two, her first prayer was because she saw the picture of Satan being cast into the lake of fire in volume ten. Oh God, throw my brother into the lake of fire. That was her prayer <laughs> at the age of two. It was a very visual image in her mind. And when you look in those books here and you read the Harry, look at the Harry Anderson pictures, I used to imagine Jesus kind of bouncing on the edge of this fishing boat and he reaches his hands up like this and he says peacefully, let there be peace. But that's not what is happening here. The first clue is this. It says that Jesus rebuked the wind. And if you take the time this afternoon to look through the Gospel of Mark, you will discover that the word rebuked is only ever used when Jesus is speaking to an evil spirit. This is not a normal storm. It says Jesus rebuked the winds, just as elsewhere he rebukes the spirits. And I believe in evil spirits. I see them on a regular basis in the reality of ministry. 
And even in Berrien Springs, we have to exorcise teenagers who are suffering from demonic oppression. It's a real thing in our Western world. If you've never experienced it, then praise God. But it's a very real thing, demonic harassment. It says that Jesus rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. When you delve into what he actually said, this isn't just a let there be peace type of expression. No, no, this is a second person imperative and it's singular. This is when I say to my boy in, the, in, in, in Walmart, sit down and be quiet when he's begging me for chocolates. Be quiet. I'm talking to you now. Obey me. Be quiet. Jesus is speaking to a demon here. He uses the second person singular. He's saying, you, be quiet. This is a storm of demonic origin because Jesus is crossing from Israelite territory into Gentile territory where there is a man who is oppressed by demons and the demons don't want Jesus to make it over the lake. It says, the wind ceased and there was a calm and Jesus said to the disciples, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? I've often experienced the reality in pastoral ministry that people long to have the sense of God in their lives, but when they come face to face with God, they're often quite terrified. Because God is not just a God of love, He is also a jealous God and a consuming fire. When God enters our lives, nothing, change, nothing stays the same. Things have to change when God enters our lives. And sometimes we, we welcome that, but all too often we don't want Him to come into our lives. Despite what we say, because we have cherished sins in our lives. And we don't want that consuming fire, that jealous God to manifest himself and to fill our lives. The disciples, though, it says in verse 41, were filled with great awe and said one to another, and my version says this, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I think the King James puts it more poetically, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And it's a great question, but why do the disciples ask that question? Well, keep your fingers in the Gospel of Mark and turn back to the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 107. And Psalm 107 um, is, is a psalm about how God delivers people who are caught up in trouble. And Psalm 107, it talks about, in the first nine verses, about those who wander in the wilderness, maybe go to the badlands of South Dakota, and uh, their fainting of hunger and thirst and how God delivers them. And then in verses 10 through 16, the psalmist talks about those who are caught up in prison and how God delivers them. And uh, just if, if you're not aware of this, today, on the 26th of March, there is a Christian lady in Pakistan called Asia Bibi. Maybe you're following her story. They tried to force her to convert to Islam. She refused. They claimed she blasphemed the prophet of Islam. She was condemned to hang. Um, the, her governor, the governor of Punjab, spoke out in her defense his bodyguard killed the governor. The bodyguard was then executed by the Pakistani government just recently. And her appeal against hanging, the, the answer comes out today. Do Google search for Asia Bibi. That's her name, a young Pakistani Christian mother with two young daughters who is suffering for her faith today, could be hanged. This verse talks about those who are in prison, sitting in darkness and gloom and in misery, and how God delivers from, them, from their distress. Verse 17 onwards talks about those who are sick and how God delivers them. But the key verses we look at this morning are Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. And this talks about those who are in ships at sea. And it says there about verse 23, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business in the mighty waters. Uh, verse 26, 
talks about a storm at sea. It says, they mounted up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Then, verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their distress, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. The psalm talks about those who call to God to deliver them from the storms of the sea. And does your version have the word Lord in verse 28, in capital letters or in lowercase letters? Capital letters. And you know what that means, don't you? It means this, is the, this isn't just Lord like in Lord, Lord Smith of, of Chicago, I say as, as an English aristocratic title. No, when it's in capitals, this is the four-letter name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Nobody knows how it's pronounced. And so most English versions have the word L-O-R-D in capitals when the Hebrew has the personal name for the Creator God. Yahweh, Jehovah. Nobody knows because there are no vowels written with the Hebrew script when this was written. So the disciples, they see Jesus standing in the midst of a storm, and they see Jesus reach out his hands and say, Peace be still, or you be quiet. And the wind goes away, and the waves calm down. And they realize that Psalm 107 says that it is Jehovah God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who alone has the authority to still the waves and calm the storm. So the disciples ask themselves, so what manner of man is this in the boat with us? This teacher from Nazareth. Who exactly is he if he does what Psalm 107 says only God alone can do? It's a good question, isn't it? So the story about the demoniac isn't just a story about Jesus delivering a man from demonic oppression. It's actually answering the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? Because when he calms that storm, he does something that the psalmist says only the Creator can do. So then we come to the story of the demoniac itself. Mark chapter 5, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Decapolis. Some versions say Decapolis, it means ten cities. When Pompey conquered the Middle East, the Roman general Julius Caesar was conquering Britain and France and Spain, and Pompey was conquering the Eastern Mediterranean. And when Pompey conquered this area in 63 BC, he set aside the area east of Galilee for a new Gentile region he called the Decapolis, meaning ten cities. And he built those ten cities as a showcase to the superiority of the pagan gods of Rome and of Greece, Zeus and Jupiter and and Mars and so forth, these pagan gods in in the Roman pantheon of gods. And that area was populated by Gentiles who were um, idol worshippers. And so Jesus is leaving God-fearing territory on the Israelite side, and he's crossing through a demonically inspired storm, which he overcomes, into an area that is dedicated to the worship of pagan gods. And in verse 2 it says, When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. If you want to know where Satan would take your children today, this is about an accurate picture as you're going to find. Have no doubt where Satan and his temptations will ultimately lead to a picture of human degradation. This is a man 
who has no family and who has no friends. He has no fellowship with anybody. The only time people come into contact with him is to chain him up with chains, to bind him up. And that word restrained, they restrained him with chains, but they'd failed. That word restrained appears one other time in the New Testament. And in the book of James, chapter 3, it says that mankind has been able to restrain every wild animal, but we've yet to be able to control the tongue. Remember that passage? The idea here is that the people of the community are treating this man not as a human being, but as a wild animal, to be chained like a wild animal. Many years ago, I spent two years working in a mental health unit. Many, many times we'd see young ladies coming in with what we euphemistically call self-harm behavior. Self-harm behavior is quite a common thing in some parts of the world. Oftentimes, they don't actually want to finish themselves off. It's more or less a cry for help. And it's the only time sometimes a young lady knows how to cry for help. But this is a guy here who is beating himself day and night, not because he has self-harm behavior and needs to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, no. This is a guy who's demon-possessed, and he's beating his own body. And I want you to imagine for a moment what this guy's body actually looks like. He's running around, most certainly naked. He has shackles around his wrists, and he's battering himself with, with stones and rocks. His body is a mass of blood and scabs and pus oozing out of those scabs. He's a complete mess. You wouldn't want to ever go near a guy with his body in this condition. He lives in the tombs night and day. According to the book of Leviticus, if you go and have contact with the tombs, you are ceremonially unclean till the end of the day. He is a man filled with an unclean spirit. He is a man whose body is physically unclean. He's living on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, which means that to the disciples who are with Jesus, this man is living in unclean territory. And just down the road are 2,000 pigs. And the eyes of those disciples, and the eyes of Scripture, pigs are what kind of animal? Unclean. And the pigs are most, most certainly being raised because the Roman soldiers, pork was a staple of their diet. It would have been offensive to the Jews to see a man raising 2,000 pigs, probably knowing this was being raised for the Roman soldiers. So to a Jew like, like um, Peter or Matthew, any of those disciples, they're crossing from clean Israelite, ceremonially clean Israelite territory into ceremonially unclean Gentile land. And they meet a man who is filled with an unclean spirit, with an unclean body, living among unclean tombs in an unclean region called Decapolis, near to unclean pigs who are being looked after by men in an unclean profession known as being a swineherd. This is a story full of barriers of uncleanliness. And no self-respecting Jew would ever cross from Israel into the Gentile territory to meet this guy. But Jesus knew that behind those barriers of uncleanliness, there was a man that needed saving. And Jesus was willing to reach through every barrier of uncleanliness, every reason why he shouldn't have crossed that lake, because there was a love for that man, and that man needed to be saved. And there are times in our lives, and there may be some of us sitting here this morning, when we've come to church or we've lived through this past week, and we're living with regret. There are some people here this morning who are, there are thoughts of our minds like, if only I would have done this, maybe I could have done that, you know, maybe I should have done something else. Each one of us has things of our lives that we're glad nobody else knows about. Is that not true? 
Each one of us has would-haves and could-haves and should-haves. It may be that maybe you've had an abortion on the quiet and nobody knows about it, but you know. It may be that as a guy you've watched something on the internet and you hope nobody knows about it, but you know. It may be that your marriage looks great on the outside, but inside it feels like um, purgatory. And you're not sure what to do about it, but you know you've said some nasty words and you don't want to say sorry. It may be that you didn't put your taxes in honestly a few weeks ago. Let's be honest. As Christians, we should have 100% honesty in our tax returns. Isn't that right? We ought to be the best citizens there are. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says this, But this grace was given us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, which means that before this world existed, God knew who I was, and God knew every sin I would ever commit, and God had already made gracious provision for my full forgiveness. Can you say amen? Therefore, there is no sin that I'm living with today that God has not already made full and gracious provision for my forgiveness. There is nothing I'm going to do today that's going to catch God by surprise. There's nothing I'm going to do today where God is going to say, well, okay, I can forgive you for everything else, Conrad, but what you said to your son this morning, I'm sorry, but Calvary doesn't stretch that far. It doesn't work like that. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so when Jesus arrived in this earth, he was penetrating every barrier of uncleanliness to reach you and to reach me. And it doesn't matter what the would-haves and could-haves and should-haves look like in our lives, that doesn't stop the Son of Man coming for you and coming for me. He sees that behind the shame and the guilt and the worries, and why did I do it this way, we still need saving. And this Easter weekend, we celebrate yesterday the death on Calvary, victory over sin, and tomorrow we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate the fact that death has been swallowed up in victory. And so when this demoniac, he sees Jesus coming to him, in verse 6, it says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. There's a tragedy in this story, is there not? Here's the guy, he sees this, this Jewish man coming inside, coming from the western side of Galilee to the eastern side of Galilee, he senses there is something special about Jesus. And he runs towards Jesus. It's all he can do. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. But when he opens his mouth, it's not him that speaks. It's the demons who speak out. He's so near and yet so far. If I can just get to his feet and open my mouth and give one plea for assistance and help. But the moment he opens his mouth, it's the demons that speak. I just imagine the frustration in this guy's heart, can't you? Here's a guy who can help me. Everybody else wants to bind me up. I'm sure those disciples, it doesn't say it in the text, but I'm sure as he ran towards Jesus, those disciples were backing up. What do you think? What would you have been doing? Those disciples were probably backing up, leaving Jesus to stand alone there. And the guy falls at the feet of Jesus what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That phrase, Son of the Most High God, is used in the Old Testament. It expresses the sovereignty of God, not just over um, human beings, but over all angelic beings. It expresses God's sovereignty over the unfallen angels and the fallen angels. I've said this before, I say it again. We may not think this is real, but I can assure you today 
demonic oppression is a reality. When you serve as a missionary in a place like Benin, Benin is the home of voodoo. It went from Benin to Haiti and then to America. When you travel in the coach in Benin, they have these videos that are just awful. They seem to be people just yelling at each other all the time. But the solution is always found when they go and they visit the witch doctor on the video, and the witch doctor consults with le serpent en français, the serpent in English. The serpent is the supreme being in, in, in Benin. It's a country dedicated to the worship of le serpent. And demonic power is real. The ability to change shape is real. When you go to Haiti and they say that's Brother Jones in the corner and you see a goat, it's Brother Jones. He's just changed his shape. You may think, this guy's crazy in the front. I'm not. This is real. That is why as representatives of Jesus Christ, we are not to be afraid of these forces because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth and he asks us to use it to free those who are captives to Satan's power. Jesus said to the man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. There wasn't just one demon in this man. There were multiple demons. A legion was about five or 6,000 Roman infantry. They were the heart of Roman power. The Romans had cavalry, they had auxiliary troops, but the heart of Roman military power were the legions. And a legion would be five or 6,000 heavy infantry in armor. They maybe marched 10, 20 miles a day, but they won the battles. When this man says, the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many, it's giving us an indication. This isn't a guy who's suffering from just one demon attacking him. There is a depth and level of demonic oppression that is terrifying. Because where the legions of Rome went, they enslaved peoples, they destroyed entire nations, they burnt cities to the ground. The legions of Rome were a terrifying sight if you were on the receiving end of their advance. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, the text says. Now there on the hillside was a great herd of pigs feeding. And the unclean spirits begged Jesus, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now we've probably read this story many times. Have you ever seen 2,000 pigs? That's a lot of pigs, yes? Even today, by modern standards, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. And 2,000 pigs in those days represents a huge amount of wealth. See, we remember the stock market crash, maybe not all of us. Was it 1929? Maybe some of us? Maybe. I moved to America in 2007, July. I was pastoring in Minnesota. In 2008, the stock market crashed. Do any of you remember that? I drive home, and on NPR it would say, the market report at 6.30, and they'd say, well, today the stock market dropped 500 points. And I'd go and visit an elderly member of my church. I'd say, Pastor, in the last month I've lost half my pension fund. Do you understand what this means? When the stock market drops 500 points a day for a few weeks, the, light, the, your, the wealth you have built up over your lifetime just evaporates in front of your eyes. It's there one minute, and it's gone the next. And I can tell you, when I was driving around in Minnesota, the dominant emotion I was coming across among members was pure fear. Maybe some of you remember those days. It was a terrifying time to be around, seeing the, the whole economic system almost grind to a halt. 
If you're a physician or a nurse or a physical therapist, one of the first things they teach you is that whatever you do, do no harm. Is that not right? Do no harm. So why, when Jesus healed this man and cast out the demons, why did he cause an economic catastrophe at the same time? Because even in the Middle East to this day, you normally don't get one man or one family owning that many animals. What normally happens is that in the morning, all of the animals in the village go out with a couple of shepherds. Everybody else goes around their business, but you get a small group of kind of professional shepherds who look after all the animals for the rest of the community. So when those 2,000 pigs go off the cliff, you're looking at the, the, the savings and the wealth of maybe an entire community just gone like that. That's serious because even today in parts of the world, if your child gets sick, you sell a goat to go to the doctor. If your child needs to go to school, you sell a cow and that pays for the school fees. It happens even to this day. So when 2,000 pigs run off a cliff, Jesus has healed this man, but he's brought the stock market collapse to that local community. And we say do no harm. Jesus brought an economic catastrophe to the region. We ask, why did Jesus do that? The answer is very simple. Well, simply this. We need to realize afresh how valuable we are to God. That we are worth more to God as individuals than all the gold of Fort Knox and the wealth of Wall Street. Sometimes we come to church and we kind of think, oh, I'm not that important. We may come to church and maybe we've lost our job. We've had some hard words spoken at work. We may come to church and we're suffering from the lash of what was said over the breakfast table. And we're coming to church feeling pretty low and pretty bad about ourselves. It's important to hear afresh that in the eyes of God, each one of us here today is more important than all the wealth this world has to offer. And Jesus is inviting us to look at other people in the same way as well. To ask ourselves, with the wealth I have, what am I doing to bring them to eternal life as well? We are more important to God than all the wealth this world has to offer. Now, the swineherds in verse 14, it says, They ran off, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what it is that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. I want you to picture this for a moment. The people, they come up, and the guy who was the terror of the neighborhood, with his body battered and bruised and covered with blood and pus and oozing kind of yellow and purple and brown liquids, and it's pretty disgusting, isn't it? He's now sitting, and he's clothed. His body is clothed up. Probably, you know, if Jesus gives him some new clothes, he's beautifully dressed. Those hands that were beating himself with rocks are now sitting, resting peacefully in his lap. Those, that mouth, which was previously hurling curses and angry words at passers-by, is now singing the praises of Jesus. Those eyes that previously gleamed with, with demonic intelligence <coughs> now gleam with a love for their creator. This is a man who truly is a new creation. And this is a picture, just a small picture, of what Jesus would do for us. When Satan takes control of our lives, this is what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants us to, our eyes to have a peace and a heavenly intelligence and a heavenly love shining out from them. And hands and minds and bodies that are no longer engaging in self-harm behavior. It's a beautiful picture of a new creation. But the people are afraid. It says, those who had seen what had happened to the demoniacs and to the swine, they reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. They begged Jesus. It doesn't just say beg, it's the imperfect in the Greek, which means they kept insisting to Jesus again and again and again. 
God, thank you for healing the man, but we need you to go. Uh, thank you for what you've done, but, you know, go back to your side of the Lake of Galilee. Uh, thank you for coming here. It was nice to meet you, but you really should be getting back across to the other side of Galilee. They were begging and begging and begging Jesus. We don't want you in our community. Why? Because we look at this man, and we look at the pigs floating in the water, and we wonder, what other economic damage will Jesus do to my life? They chose pigs over people. And we're not that different today. All too often, we also choose pigs over people. I heard a lot when I came to America of the Wall Street banks and how greedy they were and mis-selling of mortgages and all that kind of stuff. I don't know the truth of any of that, really. I guess only God knows the truth of what really happened. I heard a lot of people blaming the banks. I saw the Occupy movement a few years ago. Do you remember that? The Occupy movement and the Black Lives Matter movements and these other social movements happening in America even to this day. It's easy to blame the banks, but what about me and my own life? I know this, that when you ask a family to show you their monthly budget, you can see within seconds their priorities. Because your monthly budget is an expression of what's important to you. Let's say that your income is $2,000 a month, hypothetically. And in that monthly budget, you have you know, food, let's say four or 500, gasoline, 200, cell phone, 300, and you have um, eating out 300. That happens. Or you see um, entertainment, 400. You see what's important in that family's life. And then you see another family budget, and it has the regular stuff, food and gasoline and rent and cell phone and maybe um, local taxes and trash. And then it has, it has, first of all, it has a faithful tithe, and then it has um, $50 to support my local church school for the worthy student fund. You can tell the values of the family. You can tell at a glance how a person spends their money is a good indicator of their walk with God, whether their values are in harmony with God's kingdom or not. Pigs over people. All too often in our own budgets, we ourselves choose pigs over people. We know there is somebody in our church who's lost their job and they're struggling to pay the mortgage, but it's not my problem. We know there's somebody in our church who's struggling with medical bills, but let them be in indentured, sla- indentured labor to the hospital for the next 20 years. It's not my problem. We have a family in church who wants to send their children to school, but it's not my problem. All too often, we ourselves choose pigs over people. And we're like these people. As we choose pigs over people, we're effectively asking Jesus to leave our lives. It's time in my life and in all of our lives this morning that we chose people over pigs. And we looked around us and we asked God, God, open my eyes to show me someone in my church who's in need this week. Not for money necessarily, though sometimes yes. But maybe there's somebody in my church who needs a word of encouragement. Maybe there's somebody in my church who needs a postcard sent to them just saying, I'm praying for you. Maybe there's somebody in the church, maybe a single mother who's struggling to balance all responsibilities and she needs someone to look after the kids on Thursday. To open our eyes and to look at our brothers and sisters of people with real needs And as we minister to them, we actually invite Jesus into our lives. As verse 18, it says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him. It's the same word that the crowd used before. They used to beg him repeatedly to leave. Now the former demoniac, he begs Jesus. It means he's consistently asking Jesus, Please stay, please stay, please stay. I want you to stay with me. He begged him that he might be with him. 
But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Notice this. This crowd of people have just rejected Jesus. Is that correct? Has this crowd of people just been begging Jesus to leave? Yes. And what does Jesus do in response? He sends out the first missionary he ever sent back to that same group of people that have just rejected him. You see, this is before Jesus sends out the 12 or the 70. The first missionary Jesus ever sent out to represent him was his former demoniac who never sat in church, who never read a Sabbath school lesson, who never sung Abide With Me, who didn't know what the 28 fundamentals were, probably couldn't say anything from Scripture. The only thing he did know was what Jesus had done for him. One of the lessons of this story is that in the eyes of God, the first refusal, or a first refusal, is never a final refusal. You may have children who've wandered away from God, and your hearts yearn for them. Lesson from this story is that their first refusal, their second refusal, their third refusal is never in God's eyes a final refusal. God will still send people into their lives who can invite them back to his kingdom. That may be you today. May God may be calling you to go to that person who has consistently turned their back on God. But God's offer of mercy does not stop until your last breath leaves your chest. A first refusal, a second refusal, a third refusal is never the final refusal. God still wants you in his kingdom, and he's loved you with everlasting love, and he's not going to give up until you've responded in love and faith. I love the story of um, David and Goliath. David stands before Saul, and he says, Saul says, "Uh, you're too young to fight Goliath. And David says, well, he says, "Um, your servant is a shepherd boy, and uh, whenever a lion or a bear comes and they take one of my lambs, I go after the lion and a bear, and I fight the lion and the bear, and I kill the lion and the bear, or the bear, and I bring the lamb back to the fold, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, if you were a shepherd boy today, and you had a hundred sheep, and a lion took one of your sheep... What would the sensible thing be to do? If I were a shepherd boy today with a hundred sheep and a lion came and took one, I'd think as an accountant, say, bad debt provision, I'll write that off for this year. I'm going to hustle the 99 back to safety. Isn't that what you would do? Why risk your life for a lamb? Because next spring, those 99 will become 130 anyway. It's just a bad debt. You just write it off off the balance sheet. Oh, well, too well, the one that got away. But David wasn't like that. David went after the the lamb or the lion. And if you imagine a lion that's in a lamb's mouth, what do you think the lamb looks like? Pretty bruised. It's probably got blood and gore and the lion's maw is dripping down and there's there's blood running down and it's a pretty messy sight. The lamb's probably in shock. It's hanging there limply. It's pretty much dead already. That lamb is hardly worth saving. He's in the lion's mouth, but David goes after that lamb. And Jesus is the son of David And there is no lamb today, child of yours, that is so injured in Satan's grip that Jesus does not go after him. Jesus is the good shepherd. And it doesn't matter how badly bruised you have been by sin or by Satan's attacks, that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus is the son of David. He is the good shepherd. And he goes after your children who have wandered away from the Lord. The scars of our past, yes, we still carry them today. But the good shepherd still comes for you and for me day by day, until there literally is no hope left.
Jesus says to that man, go home to your friends and tell them what God has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And the next verse says, and he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much, it doesn't say what God had done for him, it says how much Jesus had done for him. Those two verses are parallel. Jesus says, go home and tell what God has done for you. And the next verse says, and the man went home and told what Jesus had done for him. These two verses are parallel. These two verses are saying that Jesus is God. So when the disciples step off the boat and Jesus just calmed the storm and, and they know that only the creator God has the authority to do that, and they think, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because the psalm says it is the creator God has the authority to calm the storms. In the story of the demoniac, the, question of the, the disciples' question is answered. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus says to the man, go home and tell what God has done for you. And it says the man went and said what Jesus had done for him. The answer to the disciples' question is simple. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is divine. And he comes after lost humanity, regardless of the bruises and the scars that we bear, regardless of the rejection we've given him in the past. He doesn't stop tracking us down. He truly is that heavenly bloodhound that will not uh, leave us alone. Or as the song says, O love that will not let me go. And that's demoniac. He goes back to his people and skip forward to Mark chapter 8. And Jesus crosses again the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis. And this time there are 4,000 people waiting to meet him who sit at his feet for three days without any food. So that first missionary, he had no Sabbath school teaching, didn't go to seminary, didn't have a scripture with him. He went back to his family, and he didn't give him a systematic Bible study. Because I can tell you, let's say, that, let's say you have a grandma who's Lutheran, and, and somebody dies in your family, and you go to the Lutheran funeral. And if you've ever been to a Lutheran funeral, in the sermon they preach him into heaven. By the graveside, they preach him into the grave. Okay? It happens at most Lutheran funerals. And you come away wondering, so where exactly are they? Jesus didn't say, go back to your Lutheran grandma and, and give a systematic study on what happens when you die. Because I can tell you this, when you start discussing doctrine, people push back and argue with you, with you about everything. What Jesus does say is this. He says, go back and give them your personal testimony. Go and share with people what God has done for you. If you talk about theology, they'll dispute and argue. But if you say, this is, how, this is who I was, and this is how Jesus came into my life, and this is who I am today... They can't argue with it because it's a story of God's goodness in your life. If you've never done it before, write out, I keep in my Bible the summary of my personal testimony, just a series of bullet points. Why? Because when I meet people on a plane or, or in somewhere else, I need to have it ready to go. And I don't necessarily say, well, you know, these are the 28 fundamental beliefs. They say, well, what are you? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I was in Iraq just recently and I was in an airport and uh, I was about 30 miles from ISIS, and this big Iraqi businessman came up to me, and, he, and I was uh, sitting in the entrance to the airport, and he said, who are you and what are you doing in this country? I thought, well, what should I say? I'm a humanitarian aid worker, maybe. So I said, no, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and I'm here to demonstrate God's love to his suffering children. Not knowing what the response was going to be. Was it going to be me on CNN? In a pink jumpsuit? Well, thankfully not. 
But my plane was due to leave in another half hour or so. We spoke for that half an hour in the airport about what it means to follow Jesus. And he said, you know, I've never met a Christian before. He says, but I'm sick of the violence, and I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. But that only happened because I took my life in my hand and said to this Iraqi, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Jesus said to that man, and he says to us today, go home and tell your loved ones, not necessarily a systematic theology Bible study, but just go home and share what God has done for you. If God has given you a sense of peace, then that is what you share. If God gave you the grace and the strength to live through a spouse dying of cancer, then that is what you share. If God has given you hope in your heart that you'll see a dear, precious loved one once again, then that is what you share. If God has given you a sense of purpose and direction in your life, then that is what you share. They can't argue with it. It's true in your life and your experience. When that man went back and told his people, those people who turned their back on Jesus, who repeatedly begged Jesus to leave, the next time Jesus turned up in the Decapolis, 4,000 people were waiting for Jesus. And wouldn't it be wonderful if here in Downers Grove, we could each go home to our homes and to our places of work and share what God has done for us in our lives. And when Jesus comes again, there'll be 4,000 people crammed into this church. Can you say amen to that? There'll be 4,000 people saved for eternity. You have no idea of the power of a single witness. And so we come to the, um, the sermon of this title, I think, as the witness, the whisperer, and the writer. And my wife grew up a communist. She used to be in the pioneers. She used to wear red neckbands around the necks. I grew up in the pathfinders. We used to say, you know, always prepared. And the, the Russians say, segdagatov, which means always ready. And, uh, and uh, she grew up a communist. And, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And when you, when you meet with um, Christians in the former Soviet Union, they tell you stories of real heroism. There are hidden heroes across in the former Soviet Union. And there is a, a story... It is a true story about one of the most famous literary figures of the 20th century. And the story goes like this. It was at one of Stalin's prison camps just outside Moscow. It was the early, uh, mid, early 1950s. Stalin was about to die, and there was um, a Baptist. Nobody knows that Baptist's name, but he was in Stalin's camp because he was a Baptist. He was faithfully clinging on to his faith in the face of communist oppression. And that Baptist knew he was going to die. He didn't know what to do. So he spoke to his doctor, a man called Dr. Boris Kornfeldt. And he told his, the story of Jesus to Dr. Boris Kornfeldt. And Dr. Boris Kornfeldt was ethnically Jewish, and spiritually he was atheist, and politically he was a communist, but that didn't save him from Stalin. And he was Jewish, communist, and atheist, and he heard the story of Jesus, and the Baptist witness he died in the camps, Boris Kornfeldt didn't accept the story of Jesus. So one day he was called to sew up the neck of a guard who had been injured in a fight. And as Dr. Boris Kornfeldt's hand were over that guard's neck, he realized he could tie the sutures in such a way that the sutures would hold and man would live, or he could tie it in such a way that a few hours later the sutures would break and man would bleed out. And as his hands hovered over the, the, the guard's neck, he realized that Yes, he was a prisoner in Stalin's camps, but he was also a prisoner of hate. And the words of Jesus, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us, taught him by the Baptist, they came to his mind, 
And he started reciting, Father, forgive us our debtors as we forgive our debtors. And he sewed up the guard's neck properly. And he became a Christian in the camps. So there's the Baptist. He was the witness. Dr. Boris Kornfeldt got into trouble with the authorities shortly thereafter. He knew he was going to die. And so he decided to pass on the good news to somebody else in the camps. He didn't know who to pass the good news on to because he was afraid of repercussions. So one day he found a prisoner who was a young guy. He had bowel cancer. He, was just had, he just had bowel, um, surgery, uh, bowel cancer surgery. He was lying in the recovery room in the hospital in the camp, and he was coming in and out of consciousness. You know how you are when you come out of a surgery? And the guy was lying there. His face was etched with pain and suffering. This young guy, prematurely aged by suffering. And Dr. Boris Kornfeldt, he bent down, and he started to whisper the story of Jesus to that prisoner, confident or hoping <laughs> that that prisoner wouldn't remember who told him the story of Jesus because he's in recovery. Do you ever remember what people say to you in recovery? The next day, Dr. Boris Kornfeld did, in fact, die. He was the whisperer. So the Baptist was the witness. Boris Kornfeld was the whisperer. And that young guy in the recovery room, he woke up, he recovered, and he was released from prison when Stalin died. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Maybe some of you have heard his name. He was the towering literary figure of the 20th century. He wrote a book called A Life in the Day of Ivan Denisovich, which chronicled the life of a prisoner in a Stalinist labor camp. And uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He wrote the Gulag Archipelago, books like The First Circle and Cansward. If you've never read them, you should. They talk about the struggle for human meaning in the face of totalitarianism. Uh, Dr. Bar- uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he became a Christian. And he wrote those books to expose the evil at the heart of communism. And if you ask an American, why did the Soviet Union collapse? They'll probably say something like, well, Pope John Paul and Ronald Reagan got together, and Ronald Reagan outspent Gorbachev on the Star Wars initiative. Basically, we bankrupted the Soviet Union in the arms race. If you ask many Russians, why did the Soviet Union collapse? They'll give you a different answer. They'll say that when Solzhenitsyn started writing, he revealed to us the evil in the camps that were the very heart of the communist system. And communism was like an oak that was rotting from the inside out. Communism collapsed, and my wife received the gift of eternal life a few years later. How did this start? You work way back through the chain to that unknown Baptist witness in the Stalinist prison camp who shared his faith. We don't know the power of a single testimony. You don't know how many millions of lives will be impacted by simply sharing what God has done for you. So my challenge for each one of us here today is this. Go home today and write out your personal testimony. Write out who you were before you met God, how you met God, and what God has done for you in your life. It's three simple stages. And pray that in this coming week, you will meet somebody who will ask you a question about God. When you pray that prayer, God always answers it. When you pray that prayer and that person asks you that question out of the blue, you then have to decide, what am I going to say right now? It's my prayer that you will indeed share your testimony of God's goodness, His mercy, His love for you. And in so doing, you will set off a chain reaction. You may not see it in your life, but when Jesus comes again, may there be thousands waiting for Him because you shared your testimony this week in Chicago. May God bless us as we, are, as we live for Him here in Chicago as we share our testimony of God's goodness in our lives. And I pray that when Jesus indeed does come again, 
he will find multitudes waiting because we were faithful in telling our story. May God bless you, each and every one, in this coming week.